do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938 with my wonderful guest, Sarah Royce. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and my guest this week is our friend, Sarah Royce. Sarah, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. Hey, Sarah, happy TCM Day because it's TCM Fest, and Sarah and I always spend TCM Fest together, Um, but we can't, you know, we can't this year. But it's still, it's exciting to talk to you on this. It's our day of days. It's our like favorite time of year. It's truly the happiest day of the year. And also um, just props to Sarah. I was thinking her before the call and was like, oh, save it for the air, Greenfield. Um, But Sarah is stepping in at the last minute to fill in. One of our lovely guests couldn't be here. And so Sarah is being just a huge hero and stepping in. And thanks, Sarah. We really appreciate that. Oh, my pleasure entirely. All right, so we'll dive into the movie. This week we watched The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938. I would like to say on this podcast that I have before said the wrong year of this film, and I deeply apologize for that. I believe I categorized it as a 1939 classic, and I'm sorry I correct myself. It was 1938. But I chose it this time around because... I don't know, I was really needing some springtime beautiful vibes, and this movie is like springtime colorful gorgeous. And I don't know, I wanted that feeling, plus we haven't done a lot of like action movies on this show, so I thought, hey, why not? It's spring, we'll get a little bit of springtime colors, we'll get a little action. We haven't really talked about Errol Flynn or Olivia de Havilland. Why not? So that's why I chose this film. Sarah, we've seen it several times. How did you feel this feeling? I mean, I... I love Robin Hood. He's one of my favorite fictional male characters of all time. Like I've read the um, Howard Pyle, you know, Robin Hood retelling from the 1880s. And I've seen, I think, most of the film and TV adaptations. And I mean, hands down, this one's the best. There's none of the other film adaptations come anywhere near it. Like this is, it's fun. It's bright. It's colorful. It's a happy ending. And it like, it really showcases Robin Hood as this lighthearted, kind of jokey character who has a heart of gold and protects the poor. There's no other no other version of Robin Hood even comes close to this one. With the exception of Robin Hood Men in Tights, which to me is the other excellent Robin Hood film. I will say every time I saw Will Scarlet in my head, I was going, Will Scarlet O'Hara, we're from Georgia. Let's get into a plot synopsis of this film. Um, This is like the Robin Hood that all of the Robin Hoods are based on. 
you know, like this is it, this is the one. Um, it's Robin Hood's origin story, you know, how all of the, the merry men met and came together, and it's the origin of his love story with Maid Marian. I mean, basically, we learn, hey, oh, it's Prince John over here. He's pretty evil. He's played by Claude Rains, who does a fantastic job yes. with his awful, awful haircut. I marked down, I was like, oh my god, he looks kind of like, he has like an Audrey Hepburn from Roman Holiday haircut, but like gone wrong. Like not, like it looks great on her and it looks terrible on him. Mm-hmm. Um, like a 1950s child, like a, like a Mouseketeer haircut. That's just, that's what I kept seeing every time he was on screen. Not that Errol Flynn's hair was much better in this piece, but whatever. Okay, so we've got evil Prince John, who we know is evil right up front, because he's like, I can't wait to start taxing the poor. Look how rich I am. Where do you think this comes from? So you know right off the bat he's pretty evil and has no conscience. So him and this guy, Sir Guy, uh, are going to just kind of like take over the realm, even though it's not really their place to do this, while King Richard is off fighting in the Crusades, which is a whole topic we're going to talk about later because... I don't like that. Um, anyway, so we've got all that going on. They're making England a pretty terrible place to live. Uh, Robin Hood's like, I'm not really cool with you discriminating against Saxons and like harming them greatly and stealing from them. So I'm going to stand up from that for them and I'm going to rob you and give the money to them. And that's how it's going to go. And they're like, no. And he's like, yes. And then he falls in love with Maid Marian, obviously. So Maid Marian originally is like, you know what? You're terrible and I don't like you. And he's like, why do you think I'm terrible? And she's like, because I was told you were terrible by everybody in my bubble. And he's like, well, let me tell you what your bubble's been doing. And then she sees for herself the harm that, you know, Prince John has caused. And she's like, oh, oh, I see. I see what's really going on here. I changed my allegiance and I love you, Robin Hood. So they fall in love. Um, and Robin Hood gets all his men together and, and eventually, uh, because he has to go to an archery tournament uh, to show that he's the best archer in the land, he does indeed get caught by Prince John in a trap. Robin Hood becomes trapped. They're going to kill him. Maid Marian comes up with a plan so that they don't kill him. The plan works. They find King Richard. He's healthy. He's safe. He comes back to be the king, and then Prince John gets banished, which I think is not really a suitable punishment. Um, King Richard's like, you're banished as long as I'm alive. And I'm like, it's the olden days, and you're old. That's like three years. You're banishing him for like three years. (laughs) I don't know. I was not cool with that. I was like, there needs to be some, he like murdered people. There needs to be more of a maybe punishment or something. I don't know. But anyway, it all ends up very happy. Maid Marian and Robin end up together. King Richard is the king. People are going to be treated equally and fairly, no matter if you're a Saxon or a Norman. I don't know if that's historically accurate, but in this movie it is. And that's the film. That's that's The Adventures of Robin Hood. There's a ton of really cool swashbuckling action sequences. It's got a little bit of something for everybody. And it truly looks like... I kind of got the sense a tiny bit that since Snow White had come out the year before, they kind of took that storybook telling way that Snow White had of doing things and made it like a non-cartoon storytelling Disney kind of film. But that was the vibe I got from it, that it felt like an old-fashioned storybook. Yeah, I, that's not a connection I'd made before. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, it's very brightly, unrealistically colored and and it has the title cards at the beginning and in the middle kind of giving exposition and explaining what's going on. Yeah, it does feel very 
mythic and once upon a time kind of vibe yeah well, and the, just like the gem tones alone, I know they spent a ton of money on this movie, the most that Warner Brothers had ever spent before, and it was a huge hit for them. They made it all back and then some, but this was like over a $2 million budget, so they really went all out in a way that they had not before for this film. And you can tell, I mean, it's so lush. Like, the costumes are stunning, the locations are gorgeous. Um, oh, and that's something I wanted to talk with you about, Sarah. So a couple years ago... A couple years ago, like 2014, many TCM fests ago, Sarah and I saw a special presentation of this film at the Egyptian Theater, and there are these guys that do this awesome presentation. There's these special effects guys, and uh, before the movie, they do a presentation about the movie and things you should look out for during filming. And um, there are kind of three specific things I remember from that screening. This is one of the first films in Tricolor Technicolor, which is a special kind of processing. And they ended up painting things like that castle in the distance and the clouds. They were painted onto like a glass thing that would go over the film. And that's why it looks so stunning because it's literally painted on. Oh, the matte, matte painting. Yeah, they did that in a lot of films. Gone with the Wind they did that for. I wonder how often those were saved because I don't know if you ever went to LACMA's Stanley Kubrick exhibit. That was even further. Oh God, forever ago. Yeah, they had some of the matte paintings from Spartacus at LACMA and like it's literally just like a huge a massive pane of glass or something similar to glass and they painted right on it and like in this instance with Spartacus they had painted like a distant temple Greek temple or something in the distance on the top of a hill or something. Well and I had remembered specifically because there is that scene where there's this giant like a caravan of people heading up to the castle and you never see them get past the steps you know you see all of these people walking up this giant staircase to get to the castle and it's because that's all they were doing they were walking up a giant staircase and there was no castle the castle was painted on you'll notice they cut away but I remember seeing the original footage that the the FX guys had um, to show us of what the shot really looked like before they had painted things on. So that's a cool thing. And then the two other things I remember, one of them was they were obsessed with finding out the sound effect of those arrows. They couldn't figure out what made that like a whizzing noise because it wasn't like a traditional arrow. And they ended up figuring out that it was like a turkey feather that made that noise. They did all these tests to figure out what the noise was. And I think it was like they found turkey feather arrows and that was the noise that they that they used. Yeah, because the arrows in this have like this amazing, I mean, it does not sound like any arrow you've ever heard in your life. It's like a special extra like sing. Like I can't, I can't make the noise for you, but listen. It's like a Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's like what it, it sounds. Is. And one of the guys that does this special effects presentation for TCM is the famous Ben Burt, who did all the sound effects for um, Star Wars. Um, that's what he's kind of really known for. And yeah, that sound effect definitely sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie, if not Star Wars, because it, it does have like a, almost a mechanical, robotical, something, something or other going on, not just a, a medieval arrow whizzing past. So what the third thing I remember was that I think his name is Howard Hill, who in the film plays, is it Elwin the Welshman, one of the people in the archery competition? He is the actual archer. And you can tell he's the real one because he's the only one doing it correctly because it doesn't look as attractive. It's like against his face, his cheek, and that's not like how you're supposed to do it. So he was the actual archer that was shooting arrows that you see on screen. Anytime you see someone get shot with an arrow, that's either a stuntman 
or like a bit player extra kind of person with balsa wood and like some sort of metal like on them and he's the one that's shooting them um they got a professional archer in and that's him howard hill to do that so those are the things that i remember from the from watching that yeah he was the master archer he did all the trick shots he also did that shot where robin shoots one arrow and then shoots another one that splits it right down the middle and i read how they did that shot too I, they might have talked about it at that thing but what i read was the way they achieved that was that one of the arrows was they got an extra large arrow to be like the base and then they got an arrow that was almost like an arrowhead. It was like that was how they could split through it. So they had that extra large arrow in the middle and they had like an arrowhead arrow, but it was on a wire. So it could achieve accuracy by being on a wire to immediately split through that. They did not use wires in the Disney animated version of the archery contest. <laughs> You're correct. Um, so that was like how they achieved that shot with those, with those arrows. And I thought that was really cool too. And there were so many great stunts in this movie. Um, I mean, I do want to address how I think it's ridiculous that the way Robin Hood's men solve every problem is just by jumping on someone. Like, that's how they solve it. They're like, oh, someone's coming. Jump on them. But then by the end, they get foiled because the, the bad people figure out the plan and they start jumping on them back. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of jumping out of trees, jumping on people. But my favorite, uh, well, one of my favorite uh, stunts is when he cuts the drawbridge and the rope swings him up to, like, I don't know what that is, the parapet? Was that what that's called on the castle? Above like, the portcullis, yeah. Robin, where are you? And he's like, I'm up here, everyone. Look at what I just did. <laughs> um, so I, that's, I had to rewind that one. I was really into that stunt. Did you have a, a favorite stunt moment, Sarah? It doesn't get much better than that epic sword fight between Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone at the end. I mean, that, that sword fight has been parodied and uh, replicated or tried to be replicated in so many films after it. And it is absolutely epic. I mean, Basil Rathbone was like a, an incredibly skilled fencer. And so like, that's all him. He also fenced, um, you know, Tyrone Power in the Ma Mask of Zorro. He fenced, had previously fought uh, Errol Flynn in Captain Blood, which came out a couple years earlier in 1935. And then there's the, you know, they, they're moving all over the castle and sometimes you see them and then they go off camera and you see their, their shadows projected onto the wall. I mean, it's pretty epic. Yeah. I got exciting and wrote shadow fighting in all caps because it's <laughs> it's a great shot. And um, I mean, Michael Curtiz, the director who, okay, I think at this point, this is our fourth Michael Curtiz picture on this podcast. Audience at home, I'm so sorry. I apparently have a huge affinity for Michael Curtiz films. We won't talk about him today. If you want to hear about him, go listen to literally like every other podcast I guess I've done. I know we talk about him a lot in White Christmas. But I love how he moves a camera. I love it. He's so great in well, every kind of film he does. Yeah. But he's so inventive with where he places it, with how he keeps the action going in a way that feels exciting. Like, he's never a stagnant filmmaker. I love that about him. Um, and you notice that a lot during the fighting scenes. But you also notice it, like, during exposition scenes where, like, the bad guys are plotting against King Richard. He shoots them through fire. You know, like there's a fire between the camera and them, a, a fireplace. 
And it's like so brilliant, that idea of like the bad guys, literally like they're evil, the flames are rising up. How cool is that shot? This could have been just another conversation, but he makes it a lot more interesting. He's always making things a little bit more visually interesting during scenes that could be boring if you were just at like one angle, one perspective. He's just really masterful about how he moves the camera. I should also mention that he co-directed this with William Keeley, who I know almost nothing about. So sorry, fans at home, I don't really know his story. His films look fine, but Michael Curtiz, Casablanca, like... I think William Keeley got pulled because the studio felt that the way he was shooting the action sequences wasn't... There wasn't enough excitement. He had a really laid-back style. I mean, that tracks. His films, he looked like he did a lot of comedies and stuff. And I mean, yeah, if you're if you're coming from a comedy background, then shooting something that's action-packed and it's not gonna, it might not be a good fit. It's not the same visual language. Yeah, Michael Curtiz, the way he shoots action is great. Check it out, notice where the camera's going, notice where the camera sits. Just like notice that as a viewer and you'll go, oh my God, how cool. And I'll go, I know, right? And that's, that's what will happen. So yeah, there was all of that. And I should mention Captain Blood. It's so interesting that they didn't choose him for this because it's like the core cast remains the same, you know? Pretty much, it's yeah. Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland, uh, Basil Rathbone, and Michael Curtiz directed. So you'd think they would have just continued that since that was such a hit, such a success. Um, but they chose not to do that for this film. Did I read rightly that they wanted originally James Cagney to play Robin Hood, which um, one word, no. Second word, no. You did, but I strongly question this, and I'm going to tell you why. I think maybe he was attached to like a previous version because it sounded like they were going to do it four years earlier or something. I read that too and was like, excuse me, I don't know. They were going to try to make an adaptation that was closer to um, more like a remake of a silent film from the 20s that had featured Douglas Fairbanks. And, and actually they were going to, they were thinking about even having Douglas Fairbanks Jr. play Robin Hood in this version that ultimately, you know, came out in 1938. Which- would have been interesting. I mean, to me, he and Errol Flynn, I think, look a lot alike. I think they have a lot of similarities. I would have been all over that if it had been Douglas Fairbanks Jr. He's got that same just like oozing charisma and like devil may care attitude. I bet the two of them were often going out for the same part. But I think Errol Flynn has more of that. Um, it's like athleticism in the stunt work, you know, oh, yeah. oh, like yeah. he's he's very it's really him like that's that's him doing a lot of his own stuff because uh, he was very like reckless uh but i still would have totally watched douglas fairbanks jr in this and i'm really glad you brought up that 1922 version because what i was reading today was that um a lot of the sets that they used were the same as that version a lot of the like the there's like a lake and the forests a lot of that came from that version they just used the original and um the same actor that played Little John in the 1922 version, Alan Hale, plays him in this version, too. Apparently there was only one dude that was that big and tall in Hollywood at the time. And I guess he plays Little John again in the future as well. Talk about getting typecast. Oh, but the James Cagney thing, the reason I was like, I don't know about that, was because I also read that they specifically, like, they had a choice. Warner Brothers was kind of like, okay, we're gonna make a big budget film in Technicolor, we're not sure what to do. Up till this point, we've made our money kind of on gangster films, but these Errol Flynn pictures have been doing really well. So like, what if we kind of went all, all in on this? Since Errol Flynn's pictures had been doing so well, that was why they had done it. So that's why the James Cagney thing didn't totally make sense to me, unless it was like, oh, several years before he was in talks to do this. Like that would make more sense to me. Maybe when it was a different script, a different idea, maybe before Michael Curtiz was, or anyone else was attached. And I also read that 
Olivia de Havilland was not the first pick for Maid Marian either. And in fact, there is an actress who was attached to the role that nobody, she's a total mystery because her name is blacked out in studio records. Wait, really? I didn't know that. She became pregnant out of wedlock. And so the studio was like, well, no more Maid Marian for her. Nobody knows who this poor actress was who, you know, potentially if she had been an up and comer, this could have been a career making role for her. That surprises me though, because again, the, it's like before this came Captain Blood and Charge of the Light Brigade. And to, so to me, it would make sense that it would be Olivia de Havilland because she pairs so well with Errol Flynn. Like that's such a natural pairing. I, I never would have even thought that it would be another actress. Whoa. I would love to dive into Errol Flynn and his life and what a piece of shit he is. Um, so here's the thing. I haven't watched this movie in a minute because more and more stories of Errol Flynn have kind of popped up for me that I didn't know originally as like a younger viewer. Because mm-hmm. I don't know what happens. I guess when you're younger, well, we didn't have the internet as much, I suppose, but you just don't have this information. So the older I get, the more stories I would hear about him and the more I was turned off by them. So I was curious to see how it would feel watching one of his movies, like knowing more of what I know now. And it wasn't so bad, but it, I'm not as attracted to him as I was when I was younger because I'm like, ew, you're gross. Like, you, he was accused of statutory rape by two women. Um, who were 17, I believe. I don't know if they were 17 at the time or 17 when they filed charges against him. I only know that when he was like towards the end of his life, like in his 50s, he had an affair with a teenage girl that the girl's mother like encouraged because he was Errol Flynn and her daughter wanted to be an actress. They actually made a movie about that with Kevin Klein playing Errol Flynn. No way, I didn't know that. What movie? I think it's called something like The Last of Robin Hood. It's like him as this faded great star kind of in the twilight of his years, you know, because I think he died a couple years later. He died at 50. He was pretty young. And when he died, his 17-year-old girlfriend was there. So I bet it's the same... Beverly, I believe her name was Beverly. And in the, that Kevin Klein movie, she was played by one of the Fanning sisters. I want to say like Dakota Fanning. Oh, yeah, I never, I never saw that film. I did not, I did not either because the, I think at the time that it came out, I, like you, I was starting to realize what a lech Errol Flynn was. I mean, he drank, he smoked, he partied, he went hard after every single woman because he thought he was God's gift. And it sucks because he's like so charismatic. He just like, he's one of those actors that just lights up every frame that he's in because he's so like, he's got that it factor. And then in his personal life, it's just like, you are a human disaster, dude. He is the hashtag me too of our grandma's generation. Like really, the womanizing. He would, he was just basically about getting sex from women, period, all the time. But what's gross about him is like, the violence there too. Like I read something today about like how he lost one of his early jobs in the theater because he threw the female stage manager down the stairs. Oh like my God. abuse, like things like that. I guess he slapped Betty Davis in a scene a little harder than he should have. Um, but the grossest thing that I read about him that I did not know till today that has completely repulsed me is that in his mansion, um, he had two way mirrors and he had like a special trap door that went over the guest bedroom. Um, so if a woman was staying over, he would spy on them and watch them through the two-way mirrors. and I, Like a lot Good of really Lord. gross stuff like that. Yeah, like peepholes. Um, and we know about this because I guess in the 70s, someone was buying the house from him or his estate or whatever. And um, they told Rolling Stone about it. 
They were like, oh my his God. house was gross. And other people confirmed that. Who else confirmed that? An actress confirmed that. Who was it? There was, was it an actress. De Havilland? I don't remember if it was her or not, but they were like, yeah, I'm not going to Errol Flynn's house. Do you know what it's at Errol Flynn's house? Like, no. So people knew about it. I mean, he was a jerk. He was 28 years old when he did this movie, and he already, I mean, he, Captain Blood was his first big US picture for Warner Brothers, and he like exploded on the scene. So that came out three years before this did. So he's like just a couple years into his career and he already thinks he's hot shit. He shows up late to set. He doesn't know his lines. If you can imagine, like you see in a script that, okay, I have to sword fight Basil Rathbone, who is a world-class fencer. Maybe I should train a little bit. He had no interest in that. He was just like, oh, you know, whatever. I'm naturally athletically gifted. I'll, you know, I'll figure it out. Wing it. Well, and it worked. He was genuinely athletically gifted. I mean, there's scenes where he like, standing on the floor and he jumps straight onto a table that's at like hip height he's like launching himself onto horses and but even at age 28 at the very beginning of his career he was already acting like yeah I'm the greatest and I know it it sounds like his life was this kind of charmed life before all of this like he grew up in Australia he did a lot of traveling he went to a private boarding school in England um I don't think I don't know if they were super rich but it sounds like he spent a lot of his time doing whatever the hell he wanted. And I know, I think a couple times he got arrested for petty thievery or like we got in trouble for petty thievery in various locales. I know that his dad was a professor of like marine biology or something. So he came from an academic family, but yeah, he, he like, he wrote an autobiography that is so like outrageous that even if only half of it was true, like, holy shit, he, he was traveling all over the South Pacific and getting into all kinds of hijinks. I read he was a correspondent in the Spanish Civil War in 1937. Like, he sounds like he was an, a very adventurous person, but also like he was a giant man-child that just expected the world to fall at his feet. That's kind of the vibe I get. Which yeah. is funny because he plays someone like Robin Hood so well. Like, the reason I think he never recovered from the statutory rape charges, nor should he have, like... He was acquitted of the statutory rape charges um, because they basically totally defamed the women in court, which is disgusting. Um, I don't love it. But his career was tarnished after that because before then he had been playing these romantic leads like Robin Hood where he was like, I believe in justice and, you know, no, Maid Marian, I will not take advantage of you in this alone room together. We shall be married and love one another. Like he, he pulls all of that vibe off, this very like chivalrous honorable person so to know in real life like he couldn't do any of that <laughs> like none of that was real um it's a discord it's 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 a bummer to find out about you know yeah and it, honestly he wasn't just a jerk to women too he was also a jerk to men one of his good friends was the great british actor david niven and david niven talks about him in one of his autobiographies um bring on the empty horses he says that Errol Flynn and a whole party of people went out on Flynn's boat, you know, off the coast of California there, you know, have a day in the sunshine, drink and hang out. Something happened. David Niven somehow, you know, insulted Errol Flynn perceived or imaginary or whatever. David Niven ended up overboard because of hijinks, whatever. And Errol Flynn like basically looked down and was like, oh, sorry, sucks to be you and sailed off without Niven. Niven had to swim back to shore which was not a short distance through shark infested waters like he comes out of the water 
in just his clo wet clothes and he has to find someone like, hey, can you, can I make a phone call and have my, someone like just left him stranded. And David Niven is a damn treasure. He is, he is a delight and that I hate hearing that that happened to him. What a terrible human you are, Errol Flynn. It reminds me of Promising Young Woman a little bit. He just knows he can get away with whatever he wants, so he does. There's, why do I need, why do I need to have morals? It doesn't matter. I'm going to get away with what I want to get away with. I'm a white man who's handsome. Why not? So yeah, that's my frustration. Knowing all that, you're like, ew, gross, yuck with Errol Flynn. And you wonder like, yeah, maybe Douglas Fairbanks Jr. would have been a better choice. <laughs> sure, he can't like jump. For me, it was the jumping. Whenever he would jump down on something, my, my knees sitting at home would go, ooh, ah, oh, that would hurt. I know there's some there were some hard landings in this movie and yeah oh there was a hard horse landing when he there's one time when he jumps and lands on a horse and I was like oh that must have hurt you didn't show us that it hurt but I felt the pain of that and I read too that like you know because there's a lot of swords and at one point like there's an entire room in the castle filled with people all sword fighting each other and but they all have these like safety tips on them for shooting so nobody stabs someone else's eye out but Apparently Michael Curtiz had someone take the safety tip off of their sword when they went after Errol Flynn to make it more real. So like if they, they jabbed him, it would actually hurt. Errol Flynn was pissed when he found that out and like went after Curtiz. They did not like each other. They did not get along, which makes it crazy. Errol Flynn and Curtiz would come back and work together again because it really seemed like they did not like each other get well, and they work together after this as well like they yeah. i don't know i can't explain it but yeah i read that too that they did not like each other um especially aeroflin doesn't he doesn't sound like a great guy to work with except olivia de havilland liked working with him yeah they were in what eight nine films together yeah i think it was i think it was eight but don't quote me on that i know she didn't want to do the last one or two of them because she felt like her roles with him she was frustrated by her roles. We, we can get into Olivia Haviland. She has a really cool story of like, Betty Davis went up against the studio system and lost in like, in courts about contracts. Olivia de Havilland went up against the studio system and won and kind of changed the rules in the Hollywood studio system because she was frustrated with the parts she was getting, which essentially were just like, good girl, good girl, good girl, good girl, forever and ever. So towards the end of her relationship with Errol Flynn, when they were making movies together, she was so frustrated by these parts. She was, she kind of felt like, you. I'm not even here. You don't even need me. I'm not even a person in these. So after she wins in that court case and finally gets some sense of control over her career, is that when, because I know like in the 40s is when she does the heiress and she gets the Oscar. That's when she wins her two Oscars. She was proven right. Like, I know she didn't work right away when she got back. Apparently the studios were pissed at her and I think she didn't maybe work for two years. But when she does come back, she ends up winning two Oscars. Um, and one of them is for The Heiress. The other one was to each his own, I want to say. The Heiress, which is a phenomenal film, her and Mon Montgomery Clip. She's like, yeah, look at what I can do when I get roles with complex people that are interesting. It's funny, she like, she did what so many actresses have done since is she got herself ugly and played a part because she plays Catherine Sloper in The Heiress. And so basically what she did was she didn't wear any makeup and maybe she stopped plucking her eyebrows for a while. And she's quote unquote ugly and unmarriageable. I'm not fooled. That's still Olivia de Havilland. Well, and also come on, like why? I still get sad that Hollywood is so obsessed with looks. I do wish we had more like real looking people on screen. I do also want to talk about her weird relationship with her sister and how she got into the business too in general because Olivia de Havilland is 
not similar to Errol Flynn in that she's an asshole, but similar to him in that she just kind of fell into acting. Like her career just happened magically. It was like she was in high school acting and her parents were like, we don't want you to act. And she's like, I want to act. So they're like, then leave home. And she's like, okay. So she does. She's all set to go to college and become an English teacher. And she does like some summer theater somewhere and a scout sees her or like someone's secretary or something sees her in Midsummer Night's Dream and is like, oh, hey, we're doing a play version of Midsummer Night's Dream. We could really use um, an understudy. So she's at 17 years old, the understudy of Hermia in Midsummer Night's Dream. For the record, I was, I played Hermia in a Midsummer Night's Dream. And you know what? No scout saw me. It did not start my film career. Just putting that out there. But yeah, so she she goes to understudy for Hermia in this professional production. Gloria Stewart was one of the leads. She leaves the production right before it opens. So, hey, guess what? Guess who's the lead now? And then when they make the movie, the 1935 movie, they're like, oh, we've got this young, beautiful girl who's playing this role. Okay, she can be it. So at 18, she essentially like builds a career from there and she gets Captain Blood um, with Errol Flynn. It's both of their big breakout roles, basically. Um, they're a great team together. She says in real life that she totally fell in love with him at that age. Like she was just so into him. And there was a story in her, like on her page about how um this the kissing scene that they had in this movie and she she makes it very clear like they never consummated their love for each other yeah, she just yeah. like really liked him um but she's like you could feel our chemistry and i'm like yeah you can she said that the day that they were doing a kissing scene his wife was on set and it's kind of like a prank she kept messing up the scene so she had to kiss him again and again and again and yes again. yes that's the scene where he climbs up the vines on, on the side of the castle into her room and yeah she would he would mess up her line. Go, oh, sorry about that. Can we take it again? I kind of love that story because he sounds like a dick anyway. So you're like, eh, why not mess around with him a little bit? But yeah, she said that at one point he professed his love for her. And she was like, look, I'm not going to be with you until you get divorced. And then because he was separated from his wife at the time. But then they ended up getting back together later that year. So she's like, well, I guess I'm glad I didn't <laughs> get involved with that. But yeah, she th those feelings were real. She She really liked him for a long time. But yeah, Olivia de Havilland's cool, and she, I know she had a feud with her sister Joan. Her sister is Joan Fontaine, and they are the only two siblings who have ever both won a Best Actress Award, and they also hated each other and didn't speak for most of their adult lifetimes. Yeah. Joan Fontaine is the second Mrs. De Winter in Rebecca, opposite Laurence Olivier. Yeah. Well, and she's in Suspicion, too. Oh, and they were up against each other. That's another thing. They were both nominated the same year for an Academy Award for Best Actress, and Joan Fontaine won for Suspicion. And I guess Olivia de Havilland like, tried to say, like, good work or something to her. And I guess Joan Fontaine was like, no. I don't want to, <laughs> like, rejected her. Oh my and God. Olivia de Havilland was embarrassed. Also, how crazy is it that this movie, The Adventures of Robin Hood, came out 83 years ago, and Olivia de Havilland died less than one year ago. She died in, what, June or July of last year. It's mind-blowing. She was around for a long time and, like, was with it, I guess, for a long time, too, right? Yeah. I mean, she sued Ryan Murphy for the show that he did about her and Joan Crawford. Feud, that show. She sued him because she's like, you, you are portraying me in this show. I did not give you permission. What are you doing? My friend Nick Lang once said, and I repeat it often on the show, you have to assume everybody from the past was terrible. So when people are just like normal or semi-decent, you're like, oh, phew. Um, I do want to talk about, there's so many things I want to talk about. I mean, 
I think they went full out on every aspect of this film, right? Like the sets are incredible. They have this huge cast with extras. The costumes are divine. Everything is just very rich and lavish. And like we said earlier, just very much like a, a fairy tale. Yeah. And the music, I think it's Korngold. Yeah, Eric Korngold. Thank you. He's from Austria. He's from Vienna. Um, he, thank God, they made this right before um, the Holocaust happened. So he was out of Vienna at the time and was not allowed to go back. So that's depressing. Yeah, he said like scoring this movie saved his life. And like in every sense of that word. I it's mean. horrifying. But he does this score that is really he said he was going for like this sound from another time. Like he was replicating music of that period. And I think he does a really great job of like storytelling through music while also really like having quality sound of the period. You know what I mean? Like really incorporating both aspects of like, this could be period specific, but it also goes really well with the action and the plot and it elevates the piece. The score is one of the most famous film scores ever written. And I, I think I saw that it was broadcast on the radio even with a, an introduction by him and like a special presentation like this is the music from the adventures of robin hood i wanted to ask you about oh and before we even get there the costumes i want to mention again just can we talk for one second about olivia de havilland's gowns and about her like hair pieces and head pieces um because she looks stunning the costumes are gorgeous completely anachronistic not historically accurate at all, but you know what? Who cares? I mean, I, almost every single thing she wears looks like it has some kind of metallic thread in it, like it's lame or something. And it's like, yeah, I don't think they had that in 1191 AD. The velvet and the satin, the bright, bright, super bright Technicolor. Yeah, it was beautiful. And the, the like gem tones. There's ugly Technicolor and there's beautiful, rich Technicolor. And this was beautiful, rich Technicolor. But you led me, Sarah, to one of my main things is just like, please, my historian friend, what is historically accurate? I know almost nothing about this time period, right? I, the Crusades, if you're like, Sarah, what were the Crusades? I would be like, it was about religion and everyone could have been left alone. So it's really interesting to me that like the whole point of this movie is like, we can all get along as one. After this guy was like, just kidding, I'm going to go murder a bunch of people because they believe a different religion than I do. Okay, so actually, let's start with Robin Hood himself. Robin Hood may or may not have been a real man nobody knows for certain like that's been hotly debated for a very long time whether or not an actual dude named robin hood lived one of the explanations is that there were actually multiple men who went by the name robin and all those stories were kind of conflated all together into one guy another possibility is that the term robin hood was just like a stock alias for thieves but like if you had if a theft was committed and you didn't know who the culprit was it was like, a, oh, some Robin Hood came in and stole the king's gold or whatever. There are these whole series of ballads that were written much later, like 15th, 16th century. All the Merry Jest of Robin Hood, I believe, is the earliest in the first one. And that's where a lot of the characters come from. Um, though all the ballads include Robin, Will Scarlet, Friar Tuck, uh, Much the Miller's Son, um, Alan Adale, who I think is the only one who doesn't appear in this movie. All the rest are there. Sir Guy of Gisborne is there. And there's also Maid Marian. Not every Robin Hood story is set during the reign of King Richard. That kind of came later. Like some, 
the, the ballads are interesting because they mention a lot of real people and places. So some of them are definitely rooted in specific years, but they're all over the place. Like they'd be decades or even centuries apart. So clearly it's not the same person. And like the earlier ballads don't include May Marian. She kind of came later. And sometimes she's associated more with Friar Tuck. So like it's all very nebulous. And lots of the features in this movie come from later plays. Like there was an Elizabethan era play kind of written around when Shakespeare was in London. That was the first one to associate Robin Hood with Robert, the Earl of Huntingdon. So he kind of became a nobleman. And then from that period forward, a lot of times he's re represented as a nobleman. Before that, he was a commoner or like a yeoman farmer type. Um, so that kind of is, kind of goes back and forth too. Maid Marian. So in the movie, they call her Marian Fitzwalter, which comes directly from that Elizabethan play written by Anthony Munday, where he has conflated her with an actual woman, Matilda, daughter of Robert Fitzwalter, um, who was alive during the reign of King John. Was that actually the basis of the Maid Marian character? I think it was probably like a, you know, a creative license. It's all like a hybrid of everything, yeah. right? Kind of similar to like the King Arthur stories and that it's very nebulous. It, although King Arthur is less grounded in real life the way Robin Hood is because Robin Hood is always associated with Loxley, which is a real place. Sherwood Forest, of course, is a real place. Richard the Lionheart was Richard the First, an actual king of England. You know, all these things are real and other parts of the story are like eh, more wobbly. Okay, so the Normans and the Saxons, break this down for me. It sounds kind of like what I was getting from it was there, it's like a north-south conflict. And I was like, are they trying to kind of Americanize this for us almost? Are they trying to like pull civil war strings for us so that we as Americans can understand? Or is that like really? It's, uh, it's more like the conquerors and the conquered. Like the Normans descend from the people who came up from France with William the Conqueror to take over England. The Normans, they're from Normandy. Oh, duh. Then what the hell are the Saxons? The Saxons are the people who are already living in England, who were there when the Normans showed up and took over. Yeah. Okay. So in the end, I do like that Robin Hood's like, look, I'm not a Norman or a Saxon. Like, we should all just be equals. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, that's clearly for Americans that you put that in there. You know your American audience. And the fact that he also has an American accent while he says this in England is another <laughs> tip that this is for us. I do love, I will say, the Mel Brooks Men in Tights Robin Hood did a great job of spoofing all of these tropes and movies. Oh, yeah. oh my God, One of yeah. my favorite parts of that is like, and unlike other Robin Hoods, I have a British accent <laughs> because most of the time they don't. Well, I, specifically, I'm thinking of like Kevin Costner in the 1990, is that 1991? That Prince of Thieves, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Oh. I have a confession, I've never made it all the way through. I know it's shocking for our generation, but I haven't. I've never watched the whole thing. There were a lot of Robin Hoods in the 90s, too. That was like a thing that kept happening. That's probably why they made the Mel Brooks spoof, because so many Robin Hoods were popping up. I haven't seen every single adaptation of Robin Hood, but I have seen a lot of them. There's the in the 1970s, there was Robin and Marion, which was with Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn, which is them older. There's one with Patrick Bergen, who plays the bad guy in Sleeping with the Enemy. He play he's Robin Hood. And Uma Thurman's in that one, I think, right? I think so, yeah. yeah. There's the one, the Russell Crowe one, which is like dark and gritty post 
supposed to be like a realistic take on Robin Hood. Um, and then in 2018 is the Taron Edgerton one. Him and Jamie Foxx and Jamie Dornan are kind of the big stars in that one. Sarah, you forgot the most important Robin Hood, which is the Disney Robin Hood. Oh my God, of course. Brian Bedford voicing Robin Hood, who we all had like a weird kind of little crush on his kids. And we were like, why do I like this fox? What's wrong with me? That's, to me, that's my second favorite Robin Hood. Because that film has my favorite actor of all time in it doing the voice of Prince John. And that is Peter Ustinov is my favorite actor ever. He is that wonderful, rich British accent. He's so good. And he's one of those actors that just elevates everything he's in. But he is not in this version of Robin Hood, unfortunately. I do want to bring it back around to why kind of Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland were so like in so many period costume pieces, adventure pieces together. Someone, I forget who said this, but a film historian said that both actors had classic good looks, cultured speaking voices, and a sense of distant aristocracy about them. And I love that depiction of them. I buy that, yeah. So King Richard the Lionhearted, who is also Richard I, that's his regnal number in England. He, I think more than any other king is has become associated with robin hood even though like i said he is not actually featured in some of the original ballads like some of them are actually feature king edward um and richard arguably wasn't that great a king anyway like he even though he was the king of england i think i read that he barely spent more than six months actually on english soil and he didn't even speak english he spoke french I do like that he was criticized in the film by Robin Hood when he's like, what, you don't think King Richard's that great? And he's like, well, he left his people. Like, I like that Robin Hood says that. Yeah. And I mean, Richard was more interested in being a soldier. Like he went went off and fought in the Crusades, which was basically like the West backed by the church, you know, the Vatican and the Pope in Rome um, to kind of go east to the Holy Land Bethlehem, Jerusalem, all that modern day Israel and take back that area from Islam, from from the Muslims that were there at the time. Um, So, I mean, there's a lot of like East versus West. It's only in recent adaptations that Robin Hood goes on the Crusades as well. Like I know in Prince of Thieves with Kevin Costner, he goes on the Crusades, the Taron Edgerton one, he is forced, he's like drafted almost to go on the Crusades and then comes back. Um, And this one, he's not. He is in England the entire time. And yeah, Richard was not a great king. And because he was gone so much and so involved in all these military conflicts, and he was in fact kidnapped by Leopold of Austria and held for ransom, like he cost England a lot of money. He racked up a lot of debts. And so when he eventually did die, which actually was only a couple years later, (laughs) he was only king for like less than 20 years. And then obviously King, you know, John as his only surviving brother became the king next. John had to, had to raise taxes to pay for all the debts that Richard had racked up. So it wasn't truly accurate to how King John versus King Richard really was. Honestly, neither one of them were great leaders. John sucked so bad that he's the king that sparked the Magna Carta. Wow. Okay. So they both sucked. They're both pretty terrible kings. Good to know. My question is, there's the Shakespeare play King John, and he's like the son of Eleanor of Aquitaine. Is that this King John? This is this King John? Yeah. Richard and John were the two, they were 
two of five sons of Eleanor of Aquitaine and Henry II. Also, that play is really good. Just a side note, you think it won't be. You're like, oh, this is Shakespeare. It's going to be boring. No, it's great. But I wasn't sure that they were the same or not, but they are the same. Okay. Yeah, there were five sons. One died young. The other four lived to adulthood. Um, so it was, I can't remember the birth order, but the other two brothers were Jeffrey and Henry. And Jeffrey, Henry, and Richard actually joined together and tried to take the throne away from Henry II, and they failed. The other two brothers died, Richard lived, and then there was John too. So yeah, Richard Richard the Lionheart is Richard I, and he's succeeded by King John, who is the only King of England named John ever. He doesn't have a number after his name because there was never another John. And I read, I read somewhere, and I don't, this might be purely apocryphal, but someone was like, that's how bad a king he was, that none of his successors would name any of their sons. There was never any other king of England named John. He's it. The, the supporting cast got a great supporting cast. For me, the person that steals the show is Miss Una O'Connor. Oh my God, she's great in this part. Mm-hmm. She's great. She is great as Bess, who you may know as Lady Cluck from the Robin Hood cartoon. <laughs> She is my favorite version of this character. She is smart, she is sassy, she is sexy, and she doesn't have like the same look as you would expect. Like she's allowed to be smart and sassy and sexy and not be like like a gorgeous, glamorous woman. She's like a normal looking lady who's like, yeah, I love hanging out with everybody. Yeah, I've been in love a bunch. I don't know, I loved that for her because I feel like she always gets cast as some sort of spinster or... Yeah, she's like the funny old lady who lives next door. Exactly. But in this one, she gets to be sexy. Like, she's great. She's really funny. She's really great. I will say one thing I got really frustrated by in this film with her and Olivia de Havilland is, you know that point where she's Olivia de Havilland gets caught on the stairs. Uh, She was listening into a conversation overhearing that the the evil men are going to murder King Richard. And, you know, they they see that she listened. And so she, like, runs to her room and writes a note and is like, Bess, deliver this note. And then there's a knock on the door. And Bess hides, but she's – Olivia de Havilland is holding the note. And you're like, you dummy. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Of course they're going to read the note. She was right there. She had the note in her hands. Why didn't you just let Uno Connor have the note? Did you not finish signing it or something? I don't know. I got very upset with her at that moment. The only thing that made it okay was that she had thought of a plan to free Robin Hood before, so we know she's not a complete dummy, but I got real mad at her in that moment. No, she's she's like a great feminist icon, or Maid Marian is, that um, she's the subject of a lot of feminist history and studies and stuff, because she is pretty badass. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was an odd... So stupid. <laughs> ...voice in the moment to, yeah, not have Bess run off with the, the note. Right, because it was literally on the tray, and she makes the choice to pick it up off the tray and hold it after, like, the knock happens. And you're like, what? What? What is wrong with you? And then she hides it, like, while he's coming in. Like, he'll never see me hiding it while he's walking through the door. Like, that was very contrived. They could have come up with something better for that. Just saying. So one time I was watching Robin Hood with a friend of mine and we were splitting a bottle of wine. And there's the scene where the Robin Hood and his merry men pounce on the big wagon train, you know, all the men with the money that had been raised and Maid Marian is there. Um, And Bess comes up to defend Maid Marian to Robin Hood and Maid Marian says to her, be still Bess. And my, my friend goes, wait a second, what did she just say? Did she just say, be still, bitch? So like, yeah, that kind of came, became a joke between the two of us. And last year, actually, when Olivia de Havilland passed away, 
we were both like, in, in Olivia's memory, we will be very still bitches today. <laughs> My friend was convinced. And granted, again, we were both drinking um, a bot- an entire bottle of wine. She was like, she definitely said, be still bitch. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, I remembered one more thing from the TCM thing that we saw with the two effects guys. They had some like home videos that were made on set. And one of them was of Basil Rathbone and Olivia de Havilland just like having fun together in their costumes, like being silly together. Yeah. And I got such a kick out of that. And I guess they were good buddies, like offset, like they were friends. Like you could see the sense of camaraderie that they had with each other. And I also just want to say on a separate note that I think Basil Rathbone is very attractive. The following year after this came out in 1939 is when he did his first film as Sherlock Holmes. And then he did like a whole slew of movies um, with, I believe, Nigel Bruce playing Dr. Watson. And he's a, he makes an amazing Sherlock Holmes. Unfortunately, after that, he kind of got typecast and had trouble finding work after that. At one point in his life, he wrote an autobiography, kind of talking about his career and life and all that stuff. And he kind of went on tour promoting it and talking to people. And he had this joke, this bit he would do, where he would talk about filming Robin Hood. And he was like, you know, he explained that he was a trained fencer and Errol Flynn did not care as much about getting the moves down and just so. And so he, Basil Rathbone would joke like, I could have killed Errol Flynn at any time if I'd wanted to. (laughs) And the two of them were kind of, they got along, but they weren't like BFFs. They were not as nearly as chummy as he and Olivia. Well, and it sounds like he was a decent guy from like what I've seen from what I've read. I don't know too much about him other than what you said. Like if you said Sarah Basil Rathbone, what do you think of him as I'd say, oh, Sherlock Holmes. He is like the Sherlock Holmes from the past. So the way we kind of think of Errol Flynn as being Robin Hood and being a swashbuckler, for me, Basil Rathbone is like, oh, that's Sherlock Holmes. He was Sherlock Holmes on radio. He was Sherlock Holmes in so many films. He was willing to poke fun at himself too. He appeared in a couple comedy films as like exaggerated versions of his Sherlock Holmes with the the deerstalker cap and the big pipe and yeah. It's unfortunate that he got typecast that way then, huh? Yeah, I mean, he has such a great voice and he obviously, I mean, his sword fight with Tyrone Power in The Mask of Zorro is incredible as well. I mean, he really, he was amazing. He was a very good guy of Gisborne in this movie. This film has a bit of everything for everyone. Like there's some witty dialogue. It's beautiful to look at. There's a fun love story that's based on... I would say a more real love. Like it doesn't feel quite so. It's pretty realistic. Like she does not like him at first at all. And it's then it's not like all of a sudden turn on a dime. Now they're madly in love with each other. It definitely, she has to like ease into it. And oh, now I see where you're coming from. She goes through a journey with him. They both kind of go, well, I don't know if he totally goes through a journey. Maybe his journey is just like, oh, I shouldn't always underestimate people and be so over cocky and confident in myself. But I feel like he gives us enough kindness throughout that we're not annoyed by his cockiness. I feel like this could be a character where you could get super annoyed with the confidence that this person has, you know? (laughs) But because he is so generous and kind and they show examples of this throughout, you buy it a little more. You're not so put off by it. Speaking of his confidence, I love the part where the one guy says to him, you speak treason. And he goes fluently. Yeah. Yeah, That was one of the lines I wrote down. It's great. (laughs) They do a great job with this film. It's got a little bit of everything for everyone. I mean, we're going to get to the modern lens about, obviously, they don't do a great job for everything. This is a movie from the past where certain things are reflected that we might not be okay with today. But as a piece from the past, I think it holds up really well. The story is not 
original per se, almost all of it, I think, or at least a good chunk of it is pulled directly from the original medieval ballads. Like the bit with him having a quarterstaff fight with Little John on a bridge, that's true. Um, at that, the ballad also ends with Robin losing and falling in the water, but then they all laugh and become friends afterwards. Their meeting with Friar Tuck is real. The uh, archery competition with the, the golden arrow, that's one of the ballads. Although I did love in this, it could have been a really kind of toxic masculine feeling about it, but I love that that scene with Little John when he falls in the river, he's like, oh, I love a man that can best me. I don't need to be the winner at everything. I just wanted to see like your skill set. He has a sense of humor about him. He's not this like pouty, angry man that oh, you beat me. You know, there's none of that. You caught me off guard. I was uh, having an off day. Yeah, none of that. And that as it, that is inherent in the ballads. Like Robin Hood loses to a lot of people. Like he, I mean, he is acknowledged as being a, a an expert archer. Like that is definitely his his weapon of choice. But another. In other competitions, he loses. There's even one ballad where Marion is in disguise as like a knight and the two of them fight and he's losing and he calls he calls for a quarter and she's like, oh wait, Robin, and hey, it's me, Marion. I love that. I want that to be in one of the movies. Is that in a movie? It should be. Um, in Prince of Thieves, at the very beginning, Marion is disguised and fights and then she uncovers her face and, and it's made Marion. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think very briefly at the beginning, she's in disguise, they fight and yeah, then it's revealed to be her. Um, oh, yeah. That's great though. I do love, I mean, something that I think everyone, the reason we love a Robin Hood story so much is this idea of like someone fighting for the voiceless. Like the poor people a lot of times do not have a voice. They are struggling to survive. Like a lot of us today are struggling to survive. And so to have someone out there looking out for you saying like, this isn't fair. I'm seeing what's not fair about this. And since no one's regulating this, I'm going to regulate this, but in a way that's honorable. Fighting against a corrupt system. Fighting against a corrupt system. Exactly. That's the best way of putting it. Yeah. And especially nowadays, like I get so frustrated by how our system is right now. Like I've talked about this on the show. It's so frustrating how billionaires get away with everything and like do not pay their fair share. And people that helped make them billionaires are struggling and like it's yeah. that that doesn't seem fair to me. So yes, it would be nice to have a Robin Hood, like making sure things are a little more fair for everyone instead of just very wealthy people. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I said, the whole aspect of him being a nobleman and sometimes he's the Earl of Huntington. I think in this, he starts out a knight, and then at the end, Richard makes him Baron Loxley, Earl of Sherwood and Nottingham. And but originally he was like a yeoman farmer, a commoner. And I mean, I think maybe the move to him becoming a nobleman of be, being of noble birth is kind of, uh, I'm not super comfortable with that because it gives the idea that, oh, only the rich know what to do and they can save us. It's a little bit of like trickle down, trickle down the economics, which has been disproven over and over again. Like rich people out of the goodness of their hearts or noblesse of blige or whatever you want to call it, they are going to scatter their riches on us pores, you know? Like, I agree with that. But I think the way that I was taking it was kind of like, oh, look, someone who's in that side of the system can see that things are wrong and can say, I don't want any part of this. I want to be helping and not like mm -hmm. hindering. That's what I was kind of seeing in it. But I hear what you're saying. Yes. Ooh. 
Oh, I wrote down his quote from the movie. It's injustice I hate, not the Normans. And I was like, yeah. This isn't a battle between Normans and Saxons. It's a battle of injustice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't like injustice. I like that. <laughs> that he makes that distinction. Briefly before we wrap all of this up, I would like to talk about the tights. I want to know where this whole idea came from. What, was this the first time that they're, because they're they're legit wearing tights and they are wearing some short shirts. We've got some tight tights that are literally tights and some teeny tiny tunics. And Errol Flynn does have very lovely um, thigh muscles. But I just was thinking this, like who decided that this was the thing? I don't think this is historically accurate, is it? <laughs> they're using like legit tights. Yeah, whoever made that decision should be sainted. Who was like, I got it, tights colorful tights this is what we're doing i honestly don't know that is a very strong choice and i don't know where it came from but it's a choice and i did notice so okay here's the thing i danced for a long time i wore a lot of tights my tights always ripped i just want to put that out there and i was just dancing in them um their tights never rip except when robin is captured and put in jail and when he comes in for his sentencing his tights are ripped perfectly evenly and that made me laugh and I love that for him a disguise is like I'm just not gonna wear green I'm gonna wear purple and they'll never know it's me behind the scenes I imagine they went probably went through hundreds and hundreds of pairs of of tights for all those shots of them like climbing on trees and stuff they probably got snagged on everything all the time. And do you know how you stop stop a tight from ripping? I don't know if you know this, but maybe the viewers at home. Clear nail polish? You need clear nail polish or hairspray. I've used both of those things in my previous life as someone who had to wear tights. <laughs> Haven't worn tights in a long time, but Pro tip. definitely done both of those things. So yeah, I just appreciate I just had to bring up the tights because I had to. Tights and the hair, the both things were kind of killing me. Errol Flynn apparently complained about the tights and his wig. He got the wig changed, but not the tights. That was a changed wig? That yeah. wig still didn't look that great. <laughs> that wig, those, the wigs were a lot. They, like the page boy kind of... I don't know. Prince Valiant, although I don't know if Prince Valiant was a thing back in the 30s. It's not flattering. I don't think on anyone, really. Yeah, but he complained about the wig, and so since it was only in one shot and mostly covered up. They switched it. They switched it. But the tights, he's so, you don't ever feel like he's not comfortable in his tights. He did not like them. Wow. He thought they showed too much. Okay, I love all of that. This movie did so well that Warner Brothers was actually going to make a sequel. They're going to bring everyone back and make another Robin Hood Why movie. didn't they? I would have loved that. World War II. Oh, okay. I see. That's actually a big deal. Yeah. I'm <laughs> glad we fought in World War II, so I'd rather yeah. have that than a sequel to Robin Hood. It's interesting because several Hollywood actors actually left their acting careers and then enlisted in armed forces for the war, like David Niven did, Jimmy Stewart did, Clark Gable. Errol Flynn did not. I think he wanted to. Like, I think he went to his draft board and because he was, he would have been in his, what, late 20s, early 30s after Pearl Harbor. So he would have been right there and, you know, in the age to be drafted or enlist. And I think, I'm not sure, but I think that possibly he was found not fit enough for service because of all of his adventures in his earlier life when he was in the South Pacific, I think he contracted like malaria or something, some like tropical disease that was still plaguing him. And so they were like, well, we can't. We can't, you're 4F. 
I think they kept it quiet, particularly Warner Brothers kept it quiet because he was this larger than life, super athletic action adventure hero. And he was invalided out of, you know, the U.S. armed forces. He couldn't fight in World War II. And so they kind of were like, all right, well, let's kind of keep it on the down low. Um, but he's too sick. Yeah, because someone like Clark Gable, who was 40 years old, who was like outside the age range where they were accepting that, he passed the physical. But he, I don't want to glorify Clark Gable right now. Just, I, I want to put that out there. Clark Gable is also a dick. So like, I don't want to make him into a hero right here. Errol Flynn, to look at him, he was young and he, he appeared to be in shape, but he was not found physically fit for, for military duty. And I think he was really embarrassed by that. So he sounds kind of like a toxic masculine kind of guy. So I bet even from just an ego perspective, I bet you he was pretty embarrassed by that. During the war, when other people had, were, had gone overseas to fight, I think he just stuck around and kept making movies. I mean, his career is tarnished a little bit because of the the statutory rape charges. I, but he did keep working. I don't know. I, I feel like he he worked, but he was, this is like the height of his career. Like, oh, yeah. I feel like the Seahawk comes after this, Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex comes after this, but I don't feel like, like he has some hits after this, but I feel like this is the zenith. This is the peak. Yeah, this is quintessential Errol Flynn, like the part that he was made to play. Um, So now we're here at the end. I mean, we're going to do the modern lens of like what doesn't hold up. I would say just glorifying the Crusades and glorifying like a very white past based on a lot of horrible actions. It, it, like, none of that holds up. There's not a single person of color in this movie. Not a single person of color in this film, but also, like, we're glorifying, like, yay, these rich white people who might not have really done these things. <laughs> you know, you all saved everything. Yay! And it's like, did did everybody there, did they? Glorifying a very white past and glorifying the Crusades for me are my top two. Yeah, and, like, the only women, the only, right? The only women are, are Marion and Bess. That's Maybe it. Maybe there's, like, a couple women in the background. Oh, don't, there's the woman that almost gets raped. There's her. That's messed up. Key character in the whole story. But I did love that shot of like, they, they do three arrow scenes of like the horrible men getting killed. And you know this man's horrible because he's going to like rape this woman in front of her father. That, that's yeah. terrible. And then um, the arrow shoots through him, but it shoots out a candle as it shoots him. And so he like is in darkness and gets shot. Oh, so yeah, that was a really validating moment. That was a cool shot. Yeah, that was a cool shot and a cool moment. I wonder how they did that. I should have researched that moment. That was very cool. Um, an, an arrow putting out a candle to murder a rapist? Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and they do make it very clear that Robin Hood doesn't murder just to, like, murder. Anybody that he kills or harms proves themselves to be a monster first, which did remind me of Promising Young Woman yet again. I feel like she was the Robin Hood. <laughs> Go watch Promising Young Woman. <laughs> she is, like, the Robin Hood of, like, terrible, quote-unquote, nice guys who essentially rape women. And she says, no, 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 not on my watch. So he never really, like, harms without tr- seeing their true intent. So Eleanor Vacrotain, I think, was actually still alive. She would have been older, but she's nowhere to be found. So like when in real life, when Richard was held captive by Leopold of Austria, Eleanor Vacrotain was one of the people who helped spearhead kind of getting all that money together for the ransom demand. Oh my God, wait, this is that movie with, with Catherine Hepburn, Lion in Winter. I've watched that movie and yet I remembered none of this. I don't think of any of them as being together or the same story. They all seem separate to me. 
I love that movie. Oh, that was my other fun thing is how Olivia de Havilland has these insane, we only see her hair in one scene. Was that a Norman thing to cover your head? Like it seemed like a potentially religious thing. I don't know. Was it a Norman religious thing? Uh, I don't know. don't know. I feel like in a lot of medieval portraits of women though, like yeah, they covered their hair. And I think they wanted to show a difference between the Normans and the Saxons. Not that we really saw any other women at all ever. Um, but maybe I'm wondering if it's like the Saxon women showed their hair, the Normans didn't tell them apart. Um, but that she has one scene where we do see her hair and it's in these two bananas, crazy long braids. And I was like, okay, so we've been seeing her head in these scarves this whole time. There's no way those braids fit in that scarf. No, no, no. This is false. Like where, where was that hair? Where was that hair? Where was she hiding it? So that was my other. I love that love scene, though. I really do. It's so sweet. It's so Romeo and Juliet-y. Yeah. I love that he does want her consent and asks for her consent. But yeah, it is creepy that he does just show up in her room. She she approves him showing up in her room, but that is a little creepy. Yeah. Well, and it's crazy that she doesn't recognize him straight off. She's like, who are you? What do you want? I think it's because it's the past and everyone must have had bad eyesight. That's why he thought he'd get away with wearing purple because no one had glasses and no one had contacts so no one could see. So if you show up in purple, think people think you're a different person. And if you show up in a cloak, no one recognizes you. I mean, I guess in the era before photography or like portrait painting, like, do you know who anyone is? Oh, I know what I wanted to say. So in college, I had to, in order to get my degree, I had to take two semesters of stage combat and get certified in stage combat. So you get certified in three different kinds of combat. In unarmed combat, which is like fighting with your hands. In quarterstaff, which is fighting with quarterstaff like they did in the film. And in rapier dagger, which is like you have a dagger in one hand and your rapier sword in the other hand. My favorite was obviously rapier dagger because it's so much fun. But quarterstaff was the hardest. I thought it was the most difficult. Um, I mean, I passed all my stuff and it was great. But I always found that one to be the most uh, physically demanding and challenging. (laughs) So every time I see quarterstaff in a movie, I'm like, I could totally do that. But also I know how difficult it is. I would always be the most out of breath in my quarterstaff scene. Um, But I was also thinking when they were doing their sword fighting, how high up the swords were. I was like, "Mm, no one would fight that high. Like no one fights above their heads like that. And I also noticed this time that at the end, Errol Flynn's sword is a little bit bent. Oh, and really? I was like, oh, shoot, did he get a messed up sword? Like, they didn't, <laughs> are these <laughs> tin? Like, they need to straighten that out. Oh, it's no. bent. Like, in one of the very last scenes, like, when he's telling the guard to go open Marion's cell door, it's bent. Take a look at it next time. It bothered me. And I love that they also had to show officially that guy of Gispin, is that, that's how you say it, was dead. Because everyone... They show him get stabbed and they show him fall off of like a high surface. But because everyone's jumping from high surfaces in this, they had to officially show us he was dead so we wouldn't worry about it because (laughs) so many people survived those falls in this movie. Everyone else survived those massive jumps, but but not Guy. Not Guy. He's out. And we're going to officially show you so you don't worry about it. We're moving into the double feature portion. I would say for like action-y of the time swashbuckly features. I mean, 1935 Captain Blood. Uh, would be a great double feature with this. Sarah and I watched this, I think, as a double feature once with the Seahawk. So yeah, Captain Blood, the Seahawk. Yeah, Captain Blood is phenomenal. And I mean, personally, when the very first time I saw it, um, like the second Errol Flynn comes on screen, it's like, oh yeah, that guy is a movie star. He has another terrible wig, but he plays a doctor who is accused of a terrible crime that he didn't he, he literally, like there was a, some kind of fight and someone got injured and he tended to him because he's a doctor. 
and but then they were like treason and they so they shipped him off to the west indies to be a slave and then he becomes a pirate and he meets olivia de Havilland, and it's pretty awesome so there you go you've got your swashbuckling but then i would also say all of the Robin Hoods would probably be fun. But for me, if I was choosing Robin Hood double features, I would watch this, and then I would watch the Disney Robin Hood, and then I would obviously watch Mel Brooks' Robin Hood Men in Tights. That's the trifecta for me. Um, that's what I would do. Sarah, do you have any that you'd want to add? I would say if you're coming from a completely different angle on this and you're a history nerd and you like the idea of like the MCU where all these movies are linked together go watch beckett because beckett is also henry ii and uh his advisor thomas a beckett so beckett and then the lion in winter and then this one peter o'toole plays henry ii in both of those movies and then um thomas a beckett is played by richard burton and it was absolutely amazing um so there you go those are some some solid double features if should you choose to accept those missions we gave you like so many (laughs) but you never know you know people are in different moods they want different things and i love doing that it's one of my most favorite things thinking of movies that go with other movies sarah thank you so much for being on the show this week i had fun this is a great movie to talk about it's a good just like pick me up kind of film like it's a lot of fun you're gonna have a good time at the movies Um, Well, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Sarah Rice. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and, like, maybe even become a monthly supporter on our page at anchor.fm. And please don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me. Thanks for listening.